Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you thirsty, like a deer panting for flowing streams. Would you fill us with rivers of living water, refresh our hearts and our minds, and may we overflow with thanksgiving and praise for your name's sake. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, Daniel chapter 4. You'll find this in your pew Bibles on page 740. Daniel chapter 4. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the, in the earth, bound it with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, 
And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So far in our study of the book of Daniel, we've covered three chapters and we've seen three salvation stories. Now in chapters four and five, we'll see two examples of God humbling proud pagan kings. Here in chapter four, we might also consider this story a a story of deliverance, a salvation story for not only is King Nebuchadnezzar humbled, he is also successfully delivered out of his pride and brought to worship and exalt the Lord. The account before us is unique as it is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. It is his personal testimony, and as we'll see, this is most likely his conversion story. You must also realize why critical, unbelieving scholars consider the authorship by Nebuchadnezzar with such skepticism. Because it's hard for us to understand the greatness of this king. He truly is one of the great men of history, a conqueror extending the boundaries of the Babylonian empire to become truly a king of kings, ruling over one of the greatest empires in human history for 43 years. And so it's no wonder that dead in his sins, lost in his rebellion against God, he became full of himself, puffed up with pride. There was no hope for this sinner, but for the mercy of God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. We'll work through this passage tonight, section by section, and then we'll come to a few points of application at the end tonight. So, Our chapter begins with a few verses of introduction and praise. There's a great contrast between the beginning of this chapter and chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with Nebuchadnezzar commanding all his subjects to bow down and worship the golden image that he had set up. It was his image. And the punishment for failing to do so was to be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. But now he writes a decree to all the people of the whole earth, testifying to the greatness of what he calls the Most High God, the God of Israel. He is declaring his praises. And what a testimony this is. Nebuchadnezzar speaks of how God had humiliated him, but also how he had restored him. And in the end, all the glory goes to God alone. Nebuchadnezzar breaks into a hymn-like poetry in verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You see here his newfound humility as he's writing this after the events that are described in this chapter. He finally recognizes that his kingdom is temporary, while the Lord's kingdom is everlasting. His dominion endures from generation to generation. 
It seems Nebuchadnezzar has finally accepted the mystery revealed in his dream in chapter 2, that even mighty Babylon will fall. The kingdom of God will last forever. You might say that this whole chapter is a tale of two kings in conflict. And you know which king will come out on top. And after the introduction, we get into the dream and its interpretation. And just as with the dream back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by the dream. And so he calls all his wise men and his magicians to interpret the dream for him. And notice how this time he is willing to tell the content of the dream. But none are able to interpret it. After another failure, don't you start to wonder, were all these wise men really good for anything after all? You also wonder, was it really that the dream was so difficult to interpret? Or was it rather that no one was willing to tell Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation out of fear of provoking his wrath? As you see, just like the last dream, this dream did not have good news for Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, it was a declaration of coming judgment, a call for repentance, and they knew Nebuchadnezzar had a hot head. And just as before, Daniel is the only one who's able to interpret the dream. And as Nebuchadnezzar recognizes, he has in him the spirit of the holy God. And here I believe the translation in the footnote in the ESV is to be preferred. Nebuchadnezzar is using the plural of majesty to describe God. Just as the usual Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is also plural. We translate it God, not God's. The plural of majesty, the majesty of God. And so it is God himself who gives Daniel the ability to interpret the dream as it is also a dream sent by God himself to Nebuchadnezzar. So let's consider the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar tells the dream and it's recounted several times, making for quite a lengthy chapter. A dream of a great tree which is cut down, the stump is then bound And the tree slash man is given the mind of a beast for seven periods of time so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Clearly something that Nebuchadnezzar did not know, did not recognize. Now upon hearing the dream told to him, Daniel is dismayed. He is stunned. He knows that it applies to the king, but first he says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. But before he gets into the interpretation, Daniel wants to soften the blow. He then goes on. He tells it straight to the king. He gets straight to the truth about the tree. The tree you saw, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. This imagery of a king or a kingdom depicted as a tree is actually found many places in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. It's used several times by Ezekiel. And of course, you know the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ when he teaches that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which though it is the smallest of the seeds, grows to become a tree. And the birds of the air make nests in its branches. Luke 13, 19. You also know the preaching of John the Baptist echoing the very threats of this dream. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3.10. The difference in John's message is that when the axe is laid to the very roots, no stump remains for the tree to be restored. There's also an echo of the Tower of Babel here as this tree, representing the king of Babel slash Babylon, reaches to the very heavens. And the animals and birds and all sheltering, undering it, feeding from its fruit, refer to all the inhabitants of the Babylonian Empire who are under Nebuchadnezzar's rule and are benefiting from the stability and the trade and the prosperity of the empire. And yet, because Nebuchadnezzar has refused to recognize that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who changes times and seasons, who sets up kings and removes kings, a time has come for him to be cast down from his throne for a season. So the Lord sends a watcher to speak, to carry out the sentence. It's clear from the context that this watcher is an angel descending from heaven, carrying out divine orders. Nebuchadnezzar will be driven away from men to dwell with the beasts of the field and will himself become like a beast, both in body and mind. And we're told this will last for seven periods of time. And most interpreters assume this to be seven years, but the exact period or the length of each period of time is not specified. It could have been a shorter period, such as seven months. As far as we know from extra-biblical history, it's possible to fit even so long as a seven-year period of madness into Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign over Babylon. And the main point is not whether it was seven months or seven years, but that it is a full period, the number seven symbolizing fullness in the Bible. But then, once Nebuchadnezzar repents, Once he recognizes that God rules over the kingdom of men, his kingdom will be restored. So even here in the interpretation of the dream, even before anything happens to Nebuchadnezzar, restoration is already promised. At first, Daniel calls King Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel calls here both for personal repentance as well as repentance in the way he ruled in showing mercy to those who were oppressed in his kingdom. It's often the case with prophecy in the Bible that when a judgment is prophesied, That does not mean that it cannot be forestalled or prevented by repentance. Just as we see in the case of Jonah and Nineveh. And here, no response to Daniel's call to repentance is recorded. And so we must conclude his counsel was not heeded. So that brings us to part three. The Lord humbles Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord had given him a warning. He gave him a full year to repent. But after the warning and Daniel's counsel were unheeded, all that remained was for the prophecy of the dream to be fulfilled. So verse 29, at the end of 
12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built, and by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar's speech is full of himself. I have built it by my power for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar's exaltation of himself is also a denial of the Lord. If it's all Nebuchadnezzar all the time, then there's no room for the Lord's glory. And it's here in the midst of his boasting, even as he is reveling in his own glory, the voice of the angel boomed from heaven that all that had been prophesied was fulfilled. Also here, the proverb is fulfilled. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Nebuchadnezzar is driven away from other men and it actually has an echo of other biblical events. He reminds us of Adam and Eve being banished from the Garden of Eden and also of Jesus, a recapitulation of Adam being driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as his reason is taken from him, we're reminded of the words of Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar's descent into insanity was a more extreme form of this than is usually seen. But nevertheless, it is an example of what Paul is describing in Romans 1. The affliction that overtakes Nebuchadnezzar actually has a a diagnosis, a name in modern medicine. It's called clinical lycanthropy. I don't know if you say it that way, or lycanthropy. You may be familiar with that term. The same term is used for mythological lycanthropy. Men transforming into werewolves on the full moon. And yet there have been a few other extremely rare cases in which people have, in their madness, believed themselves to be wild animals. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it was the Lord's punishment that caused this affliction in order to humble him. It's not clear exactly what sort of beast he had become, but that's part of the horror. He has the mind, the mind of a man taken from him and replaced with the mind of a, meese, of a, of a beast, and his hair is described as long like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws, and he eats grass like an ox. After the season of his humiliation is fulfilled seven periods of time, the Lord grants Nebuchadnezzar a change of heart. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In this prayer and hymn of praise to God, Nebuchadnezzar not only recognizes the Lord's sovereignty, but also the smallness, the finitude of God's creatures. And he's including himself among the inhabitants of the earth, which are accounted as nothing, who cannot stay the hand of God and who cannot question his actions. God is in control and no one, not even the all-powerful Nebuchadnezzar, no one can thwart his power. This is an incredible confession of faith from a man who just before was glorying and reveling in his own power and glory. But now, having been humbled by God, he is giving God the glory and recognizing that God is sovereign, that he is accounted as nothing, a mere creature who is subject to God's infinite power. Not only that, not only is he praising God, but he is proclaiming this to the entire world. He wants the world to know about the glory and the power and the everlasting dominion of the Most High God, the God of Israel. Not only is his mind restored and he immediately repents and praises the Lord, but his kingdom is restored as well. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We see a similar pattern in the story of Job, where after the disaster, his wealth was restored to him and even doubled. The words of Job were surely true. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is able to give again and even more than at first. He raises up kings, he casts them down, and as Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. There are many kings and rulers and authorities in this world, but as God has demonstrated in this chapter, at the end of the day, there is only one king over all, our God and Father, and one, only one Lord over all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's now consider a few points of application. First, there is time for repentance from pride. Nebuchadnezzar had problem with pride. You don't have to be the king of a massive empire in order to be vulnerable to the sin of pride. In fact, pride is often a hidden sin and even more so for those in humbler circumstances. It's often when we have little in this world that pride is all we have to cling to. And so we make excuses for our pride. And pride is particularly dangerous in our spiritual life because it stands opposed to the central principle of the gospel, the central instrument by which we receive Christ. 
For we are saved not by trusting in ourselves or in anything that we have done or in anything that we possess, but only by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. But pride is opposed to the principle of faith. Rather than looking to Christ and receiving him, pride is puffed up with self. It is concerned with your own accomplishments, your own possessions, your own skills, your own intelligence. What are you so proud of? What do you have that you have not received? Everything that you have is a gift from God, your creator, the giver of every good gift. Even the things that you have worked hard for, you have done using the strength, the mind, the hands that God has given you. And so even the things you have worked hard for are gifts as well. Nebuchadnezzar was warned about his pride in a dream. And even after this warning, he was given a full year to repent before the consequences came. Let me ask you, what warnings have you been given in your life? Perhaps you have seen a warning in an example in someone else's life. An example of someone else's downfall. Or the warning that comes even in a death. God often uses the death of a loved one or a friend to humble us, to cause us to reflect on life and death, to reflect on how we are using our time, where our life is headed, so that we might repent, turn around, correct course. Perhaps there's been some other warning sign in your own life. You know that things aren't turning out the way that you expected. Yellow lights or even red lights are flashing. These are warning lights. The Holy Spirit is convicting you. And even though pride is the sin in focus tonight, if another sin is in focus in your life, is the thing the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, the solution is the same. You must repent. Or perhaps this sermon tonight is the warning the Lord will use to prod you to repentance. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Or are you ready to give in to the Lord, to be humbled, that you might be restored? There is time. There is time now, but there may not always be time. You never know when your day may come or when the Lord may return. Let today, let today be the day of repentance. Second, there is a hope for restoration. We see after Nebuchadnezzar's repentance, he is restored, not only to reason, but also to his throne and his wealth. Now, this is a historical example. We shouldn't take this as some sort of promise or guarantee. Sin has consequences in our lives, and sometimes we may continue to suffer those consequences even after repentance. The primary restoration is spiritual, a restoration to the Lord's favor. And if he also restores your good fortunes in this world, as he did for Job, as he did for Nebuchadnezzar, that's an added blessing. The story of Nebuchadnezzar's restoration also holds out hope for Israel as they were a people in exile at this time. Think of the charge that God had given to the prophet Isaiah 
Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. He said to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah was dismayed at this charge, just as Daniel was when he heard Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's how he responded. And I said, how long, O Lord? The Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Do you notice the imagery? Israel, like a tree cut down with only its stump remaining. And yet that stump is described as a holy seed with hope for restoration. This was Israel in Babylon. I think it's likely that Daniel knew the prophecy of Isaiah, even as he was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he was longing for the restoration of the stump of Israel. Apply this yourself tonight. Perhaps you've been humbled by the Lord. Perhaps you are a cut down tree, a hollowed out stump. Pray to the Lord for restoration. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 34, 18 through 19. There is hope for restoration. And third, the question of conversion. You see that Nebuchadnezzar repented, that he praised the Lord, but many want to know, was this a genuine conversion? Did he have saving faith? I don't think we can say with 100% certainty because we don't know Nebuchadnezzar's heart. We can never look into the heart of another. I think there is good evidence from this chapter that yes, it was, as far as we can know, a genuine conversion. We see a man who has been utterly humiliated and defeated by God. And he has responded with what appears to be sincere repentance and praise. We also see a man who has written an entire chapter of Scripture. I think that has to count for something. Certainly there are many non-believers who are quoted in Scripture some at length. It would seem very unusual for a non-believer to be an author of an entire chapter of the Bible. Also note that these first four chapters of Daniel are really the story of Nebuchadnezzar, charting his path from being a tyrannical ruler to the one who publishes this edict, charging the whole world to praise the Lord. Daniel was completely absent from chapter 3, but Nebuchadnezzar has been a central character in every chapter. But to argue the other side, we must also note, we only see a brief picture here. We don't know if he perseveres, and so we don't know if this repentance was 
genuinely from the heart, or if it's merely skin deep, if it's merely worldly sorrow to get out of the consequences of his sin. At the end of the day, it's not our job to judge the heart. It is God who is the judge, and he will do what is right. But as for me, I'm hopeful. Ultimately, the question of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion confronts us with a far more important question for each and every person gathered here tonight, the question of your conversion. Have you turned from your sin, from your pride, to trust in the only Savior, Jesus Christ? Jesus gave us the key in the parable we read earlier this evening. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Have you humbled yourself before God this way, like the tax collector? Have you cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? Your pride will separate you from God, but if you put off your pride and cast yourself on Jesus Christ alone, you will be saved. It is humbling to know that you can do nothing to save yourself, that you are completely dependent on another, that that's exactly what we need. We need to be humble, deeply humble. And then, only then, will God lift us up. Shall we pray? Our God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter of your holy word. This beautiful picture of a man utterly humiliated, utterly cast down, and yet how you lift him up, and how he writes this wonderful testimony glorifying you. We pray, Lord, that you would also make us shining lights, testifying to your great grace, how you have rescued us from the darkness, from the depths. We pray, Lord, that you would humble us from our pride so that we might sing your praises and give you great glory. Do shine a light into the dark resources, recesses of our hearts, Expose any lingering pride that we might repent, that we might be transformed, that humbled we might better serve and glorify you, and that in this way we might praise your name and give you the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.